All right, weekly text-based, Tanya, what chapter are we on? 51. 51, very good. Before we begin, today's class is dedicated by one of our regular members of this class, regular attendees, participants, whose birthday is today. So we want to wish a year of success and revealed blessings, nothing but good in all aspects, spiritually and material, to Sima Simcha Bas Chana. Much success. And all the Tanya that you learn in this class, should uh, you should see it in your day-to-day life, which I'm sure you do already, but even more. There's always room for more. That is right. Okay. So as mentioned, we're on Chapter 51. How many chapters in Tanya total? Volume 1, 53. Oh, 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 very good. Okay, yeah. Okay, let me revise my question. How many chapters in Volume 1 of Tanya? 53. 53, okay. So we have three chapters left. Now, these three chapters are a little bit tough, um, but I'm not going to skip it. We didn't skip anything. I mean, 38, 39, 40 is the toughest for me, and I didn't skip those. No, we're learning every single word. We've been learning every single holy word of the Holy Tanya, so we're going to continue through. But I'm just giving a heads up. It's a little bit tough, and therefore I'm going to say right now, I don't want anybody to say to me, this is too abstract. How is this relevant? Don't say that to me because I'm saying it right now. I'm going to say it up front. There's a lot of abstract Kabbalistic concepts in the next three chapters. I'm aware of that. I'm going to work as hard as possible to give it a practical context, but do not say to me, well, what am I supposed to do with this? This is so abstract, and why, why is this information pertinent in my life? Don't say that to me. I said it already. We got that out of the way. Okay. So, do you remember back to chapter 35? Who remembers back to chapter 35? I'll kind of jog your memory a little bit. Um, we had just finished talking about joy, the importance of joy. Chapters 26 through 34 were all about different types of joy and emotional wellness. And then uh, all of a sudden, chapter 35, we said, but there's a problem that the Bainini might still have or an objection that he might still have, which is, what's the point of my existence when I now realize, after having learned half of Tanya, I realize that I'm never going to achieve internal perfection. What do I mean internal perfection? What is internal perfection? Sadiq. What? Sadiq. Yeah, well, Sadiq has internal perfection, but what am I describing when I'm talking about the internal person? What is the Benini never perfect? The internal, yeah, I said internal. I want you to tell me what that means. Yeah, well, there's a fight because it's not perfected, but what is he trying to perfect? It's a hard as what he's pushing up against, but what is he trying to perfect? Love and awe is the goal. What is he trying to perfect? When I say the internal person, what? The mitzvah is the external person. That's the. Impulses, you're getting closer, yeah. Thought is a behavior already, as described in chapter 4. So it's external. Okay, 
So going back to chapter 3, remember when it explained that the Koichai the ten soul powers, are the three intellectual faculties and the seven emotional faculties. So the tzaddik has perfected his internal world, meaning his intellect and his emotions. They are wired exclusively to serve Hashem. The Baini has two conflicting sets of wiring. Intellect and emotions that are wired to serve Hashem, which we call the godly soul, and intellect and emotions which are wired to serve the self, which is called the animal soul. And we established that the Bainini will never rid himself of that wiring, that selfish wiring. And the best he will ever be able to achieve is external perfection or behavioral perfection. All of this should be familiar to you if you've been learning Tanya with me for the past two years. If you're new, you have a, you have a pass. You don't have to know any of this. But if you've been learning, this should all be like, yes, 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 basic Tanya, basic Tanya. Okay. So in chapter 35, we address the issue where the person starts to ask, well, fine, I get it. You're telling me that I can focus on my behaviors and I'll never perfect my insights. Well, again, I'm going to go back to the question I asked three minutes ago and nobody answered me. Now I'm sure everyone's going to answer me. What is the insides or the internal person? The body. Well, the intellect always rules over the emotion. That's a different thing, the relationship between intellect and emotion. That's a different concept. But you could just say intellect and emotions. The internal person, the intellect and emotions. The way the mind is wired to think. And the emotions, the proclivities of the heart, the way the heart is sort of set up. The emotional templates that are available to you. So intellect and emotion, intellect and emotion, intellect and emotion, intellect and emotion. In other words, there could be a person, we call him a Bainini, who intellectually is conflicted, emotionally he's conflicted, but behaviorally he's perfect. That's basic Tanya. In chapter 35, the guy was complaining and saying, well, what's the point of that? What's, what's the point of such an existence? So do you remember what we said in chapter 35? I remember what your map says. You don't remember it. You're looking at it. Right. <laughs> okay, so just be, be honest. Okay, well, what, okay. you can look at the map. Okay, what does the map say? Well, there's a little uh, uh, key on it that says the wick, flame, and oil. The wick, flame, and oil. Oh, my goodness, yes. What is wick, flame, and oil? Chapter 35, oh. Analogy from Zohar, Wick is the analogy body. Analogy from Zohar, Wick is the body, okay. Flame is God's Flame presence. Flame is God's presence. Oil is Oil good deeds. Who remembers that? Now you want to know what the regular part says? Isn't that about being alone? Uh, first of all, I just, I'm just curious. Does anyone remember this from Chapter 35? Yeah, remember it? Now it's starting to fall into place. Okay. In chapter 35, he was addressing the issue that a person's going to complain and say, what's the point of this Bainini program where I will never achieve internal perfection? Again, what does internal mean? Intellect and emotion. Intellect and emotion. 
meaning I will never get it so that my brain always reaches godly conclusions. And I will never get it that my heart always only desires godly things. I'll never get that. But I can make the right choices, behavioral choices, which is the definition of a bainini, right? Somebody whose intellect and emotions are never rid of conflict, but he can always consistently make the right behavioral choices. Okay. And he questions, what's the point of that type of existence? And so the, the Alter Rebbe says to him, well, I need to explain to you the point of life itself. You're asking, what's the point of your Bainini existence? I'll, I'll ask you a bigger question. What's the point of existence at all? If you can answer that, then you'll answer the question of the point of your existence as a Bainini. And basically what he explains is that the bottom line is the bottom line. It's all about behavioral choices. You're all heartbroken about the fact that you can't achieve internal perfection of the intellect and emotions, but really that's not what matters. At the end of the day, what matters is behavior, behavior, behavior. And he illustrates with the analogy from the Zohar, which you referred to, of the wicked oil and the flame. He says the body is like a wick. The flame is God's presence, which the body is drawing down into this world. And the oil, the fuel, are the mitzvahs that you do. In other words, you have to give your body behaviors, actions to do, in order to create godly light in the world. So, really, what is it that makes the world a holier place is only actions, mitzvah actions. And then we went on to 36 and 37, and we explained the whole idea of Dirabatachtainim, that Hashem wanted a dwelling place in the lower realms. And so, really, if you understand the whole point of existence is so Hashem can express the infinite within the finite, the spiritual within the material, um, then you understand that somebody who's involved in perfecting the material world and bringing spiritual revelation into the material world through mitzvah actions, so he's not missing out at all. He's actually on the front lines of accomplishing what Hashem created the whole world for. And as far as his inability to ever perfect his internal world, internal again meaning his intellect and emotions, okay, so, so he won't perfect his internal world. He'll do his best. I just want to make sure. When we say, so he won't perfect his internal world, doesn't mean he'll neglect it. You guys just finished chapters 41 through 50 where we had 10 chapters of meditations which are all about trying to perfect our internal world. So you know we are, to the best of our ability, trying to get our intellect and emotions aligned with Hashem, but you don't have to perfectly achieve that goal. That's not, that's not the, that is, that is not the expectation. We do our best in that area, but behavior, behavior is where we really focus and we try to reach perfection. Yeah. The intention does not determine whether or not the behavior will have the effect that it has. The behavior has an objective worth and it accomplishes what it accomplishes even without the proper intention. The intention may enhance or intensify that effect, but the effect exists regardless. The opposite is not true. Somebody with a very lofty intention but who does not express that with an action has done nothing. They accomplish nothing. 
all of their intellectual and emotional sensitivity is worthless if it's not translated into an action, meaning a mitzvah. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. The, the Gemara talks about that. A guy drops some money in the marketplace and loses it, and then a poor man comes and feeds his family with it. Yeah. It doesn't, it, this, this is not just social justice. It's not just that it happened to affect the poor guy who found it. There is a metaphysical gain in the universe. The world becomes more refined and more spiritual through that act, even devoid of intention. The world, but not the person. Yeah, who cares about the person? We're talking about the world. So Russell doesn't count? What? Well, I will refer you back to chapters 30, 38, 39, and 40. We've been through all of this. We've been through all of this. You're going to say to me, well, hold on a second. You're telling me you don't have to have any intention. Intention is totally irrelevant. Well, that was the question that we answered in chapters 38, 39, and 40. We said that, of course, intention is important. And I alluded to it a minute ago when I said it enhances or intensifies the effect of the action. But the main thing is the action. So we've been through all of this. Yeah. But action is also a thought, right? So it's thought is included. Active, willful thought is included as behavior. Yes, yes, yes. In Tanya, so it is. You thought of doing something. You wanted to do it. You planned it in your mind. You didn't get to. You got. It's Talking about machshava teva mitzvah kosh baruch hu lemaisa. Yeah. What? Good thoughts affect the world, yes. Yes, sure. It's very healing, yeah. Positive thinking affects the world, yes. Yeah. We're not talking about somebody who thought to do a mitzvah and then changed their mind. We're talking about somebody who thought to do a mitzvah and then circumstances changed to where they were unable to do it or it was no longer necessary. Okay, we're getting very sidetracked. I want to stop everyone. No more questions. Stop. What chapter are we on? 51. Why did I start talking about uh, oil, wick, and flame? Okay, so you want to learn chapter 51, you're going to see why I started reminding you about chapter 35? Okay. Chapter 51, behold. We're going to further explain the expression or the language of the Yanukkah. The Yanukkah is this weird kid in the Zayhar. We have to explain... We have to explain the manner of the indwelling of the Shekhinah that was in the Holy of Holies in the Temple. Also, what does it mean anytime we describe the Shekhinah, the indwelling of the Shekhinah? Okay. Is this the unique as I said, chapter 35, we had the metaphor from the Zohar of the wick, the oil, and the flame. Wick is the body. Flame is the, not the soul, no, no, Hashem's presence. The oil is the mitzvahs, the fuel, great, okay. You want to know where Yanuka comes in? Yanuka is the one in the Zohar who says that metaphor. If you go look up in the Zohar and you're like, yeah, it's a conversation. The Yanuka is saying, hey guys, I want to tell you something. Yanuka is this, this kid. And this kid says, I want to tell you something. A person is like a lamp because he's got a wick and oil and a flame. Okay. 
Hashem's presence. So here at the beginning of chapter 51, we say, hey, can we go back to 35 a little bit and explain a little bit more that stuff about the Yanuka, or not about the, but the stuff that the Yanuka said about the oil, the wick, and the flame metaphor? Can we go into that a little bit more? So he's basically saying, I want to revisit a, a subject that we touched upon um, 15 chapters ago. Why are we going back to it? Why did we ever go away from it? Okay, partially because of some, please, please focus as, as intensely as I do. Remember, a couple minutes ago, you're asking, like, well, hold on, if action is everything, then what about intent? Intent doesn't matter. So we dealt with that question. We said, no, intent does matter. And that led us down a whole path of explaining the, the role of intent. 30, 38, 39, 40 was all about kavona samitzvahs, about intent. And then 41 through 50 was all about love and awe and meditating to create more of those emotions. So we had this sort of like side, I don't want to call it a side point, but we departed from the subject of the, the power of action in order to address the role of emotion. But now we're coming back. We're coming back to the power of action. And really, we're finishing Tanya with that theme because that's the main point of Tanya. Really, Tanya is a book written for a person whose goal is to achieve behavioral perfection because he's not going to achieve internal perfection. Internal means what? Intellect and emotion. Right. He's not going to achieve that. So we're coming back to that topic because really we're finishing Tanya with the main point. We hit the main point when we were on chapters 35, 36, and 37, and then we sort of went away from it to address the whole emotional stuff, but now we're coming back to it, okay? Does that make sense, what I'm saying? Okay, great. So now he says, I want to talk a little bit more about what is this, the indwelling of the Shekhinah, which the flame represents in this metaphor, the indwelling of the Shekhinah, that you create godly light, or you draw down godly light upon yourself when you do a mitzvah. Just like when you burn the, the oil, the, the, the fuel is consumed and creates flame creates light. So what does it mean when you're doing a mitzvah, you're creating godly light, you're bringing the Shekhinah down upon you? And, and, and in general, what does it mean the Shekhinah dwelling anywhere? And specifically, what does it mean that the Shekhinah was dwelling in the Holy of Holies? You're aware of this concept, right? That in the, in the, in the Beisamek, in the Holy Temple, they had the Holy of Holies, and the Shekhinah was there. So we want to understand this. Now, Again, I told you, do not ask me what does it have to do with my life. I already told you you're going to ask that, but don't say it out loud. But if you want to know partially what does it have to do with your life, okay, this whole discussion of the manner or the mechanics of how the Shekhinah rests in the Holy Temple, or anywhere for that matter, <coughs> the point of it is to understand what it means when we cause the, the godly presence to rest upon ourselves through doing mitzvahs. Okay? Make sense? We're basically trying to figure out what does it mean to cause godliness to appear in the world through doing mitzvahs. Simple. Okay. Great. Hello. So he asks a question. It's a great question. It's such a, like a, what we call klutzkasha. Klutzkasha is a question that's so simple and dumb that no one can answer it. Right? It's like, wow, what a silly question. And then you're like, yeah, well, what's the answer? That's called a klutzkasha. Okay. Isn't it true the whole world is full of his glory and there is no place devoid of him? So how do you say that the Shekhinah was dwelling in the Holy of Holies? Hashem is everywhere. 
Wow, I never thought of it like that. You're right. Wow. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, if you have an impulse to answer that question, <laughs> that is not coming from a good place. I want you to stifle that impulse, and I want you to embrace the wonder and the curiosity, and just to say, wow, that is amazing. I can't even fathom what might be the answer to that question. And now I want you to go on a journey. Okay. Rather than offering your hot take on the issue, let's just experience what the Al-Tarebbe would like to teach us. Okay. But here's the, here's the deal. Like it says, From my flesh I see God. That's a common verse that's used in Kabbalah and Chassidus to mean that we can understand spiritual ideas sometimes by looking at how they are mirrored in material phenomena, particularly in, the, in, in, in human psychology. Because the human being is made in God's image, sometimes we can, understand, we can understand some things about the way God relates to the world by looking at the way the person's psyche is structured. For instance, back in chapter 3 when we learned about the ten uh, faculties of the soul, the three intellectual and seven emotional, which we mentioned earlier today, and the first thing he told us is those are a mirror image of Hashem's ten spheres. Okay? And you can go bo both directions, by the way. You can gain psychological insights about a person by learning about different levels of, say, their stauslis, so you can do the reverse. You can understand, say, their stauslis by having insight into the structure of the person. Okay. So, I can grasp certain spiritual concepts by looking at the way it is in the human experience. So, for instance, here's an analogy. When you look at a person, all of his 248 limbs are full of his soul. What does that mean? They're all alive. The soul comes and enlivens them. So the soul is present in all of his body, from his head to his feet. In other words, if I ask you, where's the soul? Point to it. Locate it. What do you mean? It's the life force that runs through the entire body, through every single limb. And nevertheless, the main place for it is in the brain. From the brain, it emanates out to all of the limbs. In other words, you cannot locate the life force of a person, which is the expression of the manifestation of the soul, you cannot locate it in any particular part of the body. It's not compartmentalized like that. It's the life force that flows through the entire body. And yet we understand the manner in which the soul interfaces with the body emanates from the brain as evidenced from the fact that the various soul powers of the body, whether it's movement or different senses, are all coordinated and conducted from the brain. So, this is, this is the, the template, this is the concept we want you to have in mind. The soul is running throughout the entire body, it's present equally throughout all parts of the body, and yet we understand there's a special relationship between the soul and the brain. Make sense? Yes. Okay, without getting deeply into it, These, these, are, these are archetypes. 
They begin on the highest levels and they're just replicated over, they're just patterns. So we just see them replicate like fractals in mathematics. We see these patterns replicated level after level after level. So sometimes when we're learning about spiritual phenomena and it's too abstruse to, to wrap our minds around it, what you can do is just look at the way it manifests on a lower plane, which is more relatable, and then we say, okay, so it's the same thing, just take it up a few notches. Like nature, like anything. Everything in God's creation is imprinted with a pattern that exists in spiritual archetypes. So very often Chassidus will examine the way it looks on the lower level, particularly with looking, examining the human psyche, in order to gain insight as to the way things are occurring on a spiritual level. Okay, make sense? Okay, let's keep going. Great. Every limb or organ receives the proper life force that it needs from the brain. For instance, the eye to see, and the ear to hear, and the mouth to speak, and the feet to mobilize, to move, to transport. Like we see for ourselves. In the brain, the brain is aware of everything going on in all the parts of the body and everything that happens to them. When you stub your toe, does your toe hurt? Does your brain hurt? Okay. As Emo Phillips once said. You know Emo Phillips? He's from Downers Grove. Um, you know where Downers Grove? Okay, Chicago. He said, I used to think that the brain was the most fascinating part of my body. And then I thought, look who's telling me that. Okay. Now, there is no actual change in the life force in the different limbs. Mitzat atzma mohusa, inherent to the soul itself. Shia mohus v'atzmusa mischalak ramach chalokim shenu mislabshim v'ramach mekemis. It's not that the soul is a composite of various different capacities. Kfitzir chalkem mekemis evreguf. And that those capacities come out depending on which organ is housing them. That's not what it is. You understand what we're saying it is not? It's not that the soul is this energy that's a composite of various different capacities. It's an equal distribution. What we're saying is this. We know that the soul, when it enters the body, it makes, well, like we just said, the eye sees and the ear hears and the mouth speaks. So what I want to know is what is that soul uh, is it a composite of the capacity to see, the capacity to hear, the capacity to speak, and then it just, when it goes into the right organ, that particular capacity is triggered? No, it is not. He said, because if that's the way you, you view it, you're actually um, 
applying material limitations to a spiritual entity, and he says, chas v'shalom, God forbid, which is very interesting. Like, it's interesting, because if you would say that about God, you'd say chas v'shalom. You cannot anthropomorphize in that way where you would limit God with material restrictions. It's interesting. He's saying here, you can't even say that about the soul. He doesn't want to say that the soul is a composite of different capacities. Correct. Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah yes, correct. Yeah. Correct, yeah, okay. Ella, but rather, what is the way that it works? Kula etzim echad ruchni. The soul is one simple spiritual energy. Poshet umufshot. Absolutely simple. Mikol tzir gashmi has no physical attributes or anything that resembles physical attributes as far as like limitation or description. This is where this ends and this begins. Nothing like, you cannot say this part of the soul, that part of the soul. That is not inherently what it is. And therefore you cannot say that the soul is more present in the brain than in the feet. Because that's locating it. It's there, not there. Because the soul is not something that's physical in the sense we can locate it. Oh no, my, my wallet's not in my left pocket, it's in my right pocket. Well, the wallet's a physical thing. It's either in this pocket or that pocket. But you don't say, oh, my soul's in my brain, not in my feet. No, it's equally present everywhere. Rock, rather. The soul is such that it is a simple energy, and yet when that simple energy plugs into the different organs or limbs, the way that simple energy is translated is going to be fitting with the capacity or the structure of that organ or of that limb. So first of all, he says, and by the way, the godly soul is plugging into the enlivening soul, which is then plugging into the body. And they all have the same structure, that 248 and 365. And yet we say that the main place of revelation is in the brain. You understand what we're saying? Do not imagine something physical that's located here and not there. Rather, we're talking about a spiritual energy that is equally present in the entire body. Furthermore, we're not talking about a spiritual energy that is a composite of different capacities, but it's one simple energy. And yet, when it manifests through the different limbs, particular expressions of that energy come out. It's like mana becomes like the flesh. Yeah, yeah, whatever you want it to be, right. The brain is the command center, yeah. The the brain is the command center of the body, and it distributes the soul. That's why the brain, so to speak, receives the chayas first. 
Shehain Chochma bin Adas, which is Chochma bin Adas, and the capacity for thought and everything that, that is associated with the brain. And not only that, also the general life force for the whole body can be said to be coming from the brain. So from the brain, the chayus, the, the, the life force emanates out, and everything gets what it needs. The, power, the soul's power for sight is manifest in the eye. The soul's capacity for hearing is manifest in the Ear, v'chulu. You understand what we're saying? We're not, we're not saying that the soul has a composite of these different powers. The soul is one simple energy. What we're saying is when that simple energy is filtered through these different organs, so that's what it looks like. It looks like sight in the eye. It looks like hearing in the ear. It looks like speech in the mouth. Entering the body, so to speak, and again, we're not talking spatially like it enters through this door and then it walks across the room and it gets to the other side of the room. It's not spatial. But what we're saying is that the, the soul fills the body like, he gives an analogy here, the sun, the light of the sun, spreads out from the sun into various rooms or even rooms within rooms. So pretend there's no electric lighting. All you have is sunlight. So you walk through a house, and every, house, uh, every room in the house has light. But if you go outside, you see it's all one sun. And sometimes there's even rooms within rooms, meaning rooms that don't have their own window, external window, but it's getting light from, a, from another room that does have an external window. But it's all one sun. So you have to think about it like that. The soul is like a sun which is shining, it's one sun, and just in different rooms, you experience the subjective phenomenon of different light. But it's not different light, it's one light. Okay? He says in brackets, And by the way, even the heart, even the heart, because... The heart is right up there, you know, like you talk about other parts of the body, like the feet, let's say. We know the feet depend on the brain. Well, even the heart, which you could make a strong case that it's on par with the brain, brain and heart, you know, those are the two biggies. And we say, no, nevertheless, even the heart, Mikabal Mahamayach receives from the brain. In fact, that is why we say that the brain rules over the heart. And if you're a student of Tanya, you know the brain rules over the heart is like one of our most important concepts. So he's explaining actually the mechanics of why the brain rules over the heart. Why? Because even the heart receives its life force from the brain. The brain is the distribution center 
where everything goes out to the rest of the body. Even though the soul is equally present everywhere, you can't compartmentalize it and say it's more here than there, and yet we understand the manner in which the soul interfaces with the body is such where it is distributed to the various limbs through the brain. So it's a, it's a hard concept because it's not a physical thing. It's not like saying, like, where do I locate a certain resource? Oh, I have to go get it from this location and bring it to other locations. It's not like that. What we're describing is more something, something dynamic. It's a flow. It's a process. So the reason, remember why we're, we're talking about this, Let's take you back. From my flesh I see godliness. Why are we discussing this? What was our point? Very good. Okay, thank you. Because we almost lost the context. We're only having this present discussion about the manner in which the soul interfaces with the brain and through that with the entire body. We're only having that discussion to answer a question that we asked at the beginning of the chapter, which is, what does it mean that the Shekhinah was dwelling in the Holy of Holies when God is everywhere. So that's what we're headed toward. Okay, so here we go. And so too, literally, meaning I just gave you the analogy. The analogy is the soul's life force, the way that it enters the brain and then spreads to the whole body. So too, same idea, same idea. Al-Derech Marshall, allegorically speaking, the infinite fills all worlds to enliven them. Just like a soul fills the whole body. The infinite fills all worlds. All worlds, plural, all the worlds, to enliven them. And in every world there are countless, innumerable beings. Even in the spiritual worlds, what, you think... Is just one type of cookie-cutter angel. It's even more complex and diverse up there than it is down here. There's tons of different types of angels and souls. There are all types of innumerable different worlds, different planes of reality. And Hashem is filling all of them. The essence of Hashem is equally present in all of these different worlds. Just like we said, the soul is equally present in all parts of the body. Like it says in the Zayar, He is the hidden of all hidden. Meaning to say, He's equally present. Oh, he doesn't look like he's equally present? Yeah, that's why he's called hidden. In fact, even in the higher worlds, he is hidden just like he is hidden in the lower worlds. There's no thought that can grasp him even in the higher worlds, even in the higher worlds where they have this, obviously the higher beings have a higher capacity to understand spiritual phenomena, but they can't grasp Hashem over there either. So ultimately he's hidden there as well. 
Even there, he's called hidden. So, just like he's there, he's here. You think they understand him up there? No, they don't understand him up there either. You think the angels understand him? Oh, up there the angels understand God. No, he's infinite. The angels don't understand him either. So, just like he's present up there, he's present down here. So then what's the difference between the higher and the lower worlds? I mean, if we're using the terms higher worlds and lower worlds, those are relative terms. Obviously, we're saying there are distinctions. But we just said he's equally present in all worlds. So then why are we even, where do these categories even come from? What do they mean? It's all talking about concealment and revelation. Degrees of concealment and revelation. That, that's all it is. That's why, by the way, the divine energy is often called light. Because it, it helps us when we speak about concealment and revelation, lighter, darker. But he's present equally in all worlds to enliven all the worlds. The higher worlds have more godliness revealed in them. Relatively speaking, I mean, none of them can contain his infinity. But the higher worlds, relative to the lower worlds, have more revelation of godliness in them. All the different beings in the different worlds, they receive according to their capacity. In other words, each being receives according to its capacity, what it can handle. The lower worlds, even the lower spiritual worlds, you're saying, I thought the material world is the lower world. No, the material world is the lowest world. There are lower worlds spiritually, meaning they're entirely spiritual worlds, but relative to other spiritual worlds, they're called lower spiritual worlds. And at any rate, the lower worlds, even the spiritual lower worlds, they don't receive such revelation. They can't handle such revelation. It has to be garbed in some type of filter, some type of uh, garment that, that eases it, that diminishes it. And there are so many of these concealments and filters until the culminating effect the end effect is you get this coarse physical world where the creator is all but concealed and you see creation instead of creator. That's, the, that's like the end of the line effect. You get, finally, the lowest level where this physical world is, you have inanimate objects, he says, that they, they appear dead. What does it mean they appear dead? A rock is alive? Well, it's not alive like it's breathing or growing or, uh, you know, it has cell division or anything, but it has a chayas in it. Everything has, a, has life. I mean, the, Everything exists because Hashem is creating it. So there's, there's life in everything. But you look at a rock, it doesn't appear to be living. You don't see the chais. You don't see the divine energy. Although we know that matter and energy is one, and everything has 
energy. In fact, even the tiniest amount of matter, like an atom, has incredible amounts of energy within it. Okay, but down here, everything appears lifeless. So that's the, the result of all these different um, compounding concealments, one after the other, until you get this, this, this end result. All right. Ach, however, within them, within all these beings, even physical beings that appear inanimate, well, they are inanimate, but they appear to have no life in them, even though they're really uh, made of life. Ach, within them, they have a life force that is constantly bringing them into being something from nothing. So they don't revert into the nothingness from whence they came. So there's a constant divine life force being inserted into everything so that it doesn't automatically revert to its, to its default of non-existence. This life force that we're describing is actually the infinite light, but it's invested in various different garments. Like it says in Eitzchayim, which is the Arizal, the Chayus Kada Orza Chumri Anira Leini Basar Hu Malchus de Malchus Dasiya. He gives an example. He says, for instance, the physical Earth, <coughs> the globe. Um, it appears to be physical and coarse to the physical eye. Meaning, you look at the ground that you walk on, just this, just dirt, it's ground. And nevertheless, it is Malchus de Malchus Dasiya. It is the sphere of Malchus within the sphere of Malchus of the world of Asiya. In other words, it might appear lifeless to you, but it is the manifestation of a lofty spiritual energy. And then within it, within Malchus de Malchus Dasiya, is Malchus de Yitzira, etc. Malchus de Malchus de Asiya contains within it Malchus of Yitzira, meaning of the higher world. So, you know, it's like those little uh, Russian dolls. So, yeah. So, you keep opening up and going to the core of everything, eventually you're going to find the Oyer Eintzov, you're going to find the infinite light. The question is just how, man, how many containers is it masked behind? Okay? <laughs> Until within everything are the ten spheres of Atzilus. So the ten spheres of Atzilus, that's why it's always you know, cute when people start learning the four worlds, and they, they always ask, in, invariably, people will ask, where is Atzilus? Where is it? First of all, it's a spiritual world. What do you mean, where is it? Well, I'm going to point this direction. Let me get my compass. Okay. But once you understand this, what do you mean, where is Atzilus? <laughs> right, right here. It's right here. It's that the, the plane of reality that we experience is the net result of compounding concealments. But if you remove those concealments, then the core of everything is the highest world. So it's right here. It's just concealed. And then the ten spheres of Atzilus, in turn, they are entirely united with the infinite light itself. So what are we saying? We didn't clearly, explicitly answer the question, but he gave us enough information that you should be able to figure out the basic gist of the answer. Mm -hmm. God is everywhere. 
Okay, so what does it mean he's present or he was revealed or the Shekhinah dwelt in the Holy of Holies in the Temple? You say, okay, well, I'll give you an analogy. Your soul is in your entire body. And yet, it has a special relationship with the brain because the brain is the center from whence it emanates out to the body. Okay, so too... God is everywhere in all of his creation, all of his worlds. But there's a center, and we didn't really say explicitly what that is. So if you're saying, I missed it, I missed it, you didn't miss it. You didn't miss it. You didn't miss it. We didn't say it. But if you're feeling like you missed it, you're learning properly because he, he came so close to saying it that it feels like he should have said it. But if he would have said it, then we'd be on chapter 52. <laughs> Very good. Okay, so you're following. Okay. So at this point, what do I know? I know, he didn't say these words yet, but i got to figure this out just based on if I'm, if I'm learning this properly. It must be that there's a brain of the world. It must be, because that's, that's the analogy here. There's a brain, and by brain I mean a, a, a control center, a command center, a, a headquarters, just like there's a brain in the body that the soul emanates from to reach all parts of the body. The world... Or perhaps the worlds, or each world, I don't know how it works yet, he didn't teach me yet. There must be something that is akin to a brain, or rather, more accurately stated, my brain must be akin to some archetype in the spiritual realms which, is, which functions um, in a way that I would relate to as brain-like. Could be, I don't know yet. You following? Okay, so you, you get where this chapter leaves us mm -hmm. and how we really need the next chapter and where you, you understand where the, the mm -hmm. what was answered what wasn't answered we're all good mm 